to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. What did the Civil War smell like? What were its sounds, its tastes, its textures? Some things are hard to find in the historical record and could not be preserved, but some historians are using creative means to find them anyway. We'll talk with one of them, Professor Mark M. Smith, author of The Smell of Battle, The Taste of Siege, A Sensory History of the Civil War, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath. Emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the traditional world headquarters of Civil War Talk Radio in the Brewster Building, third floor, office number 20, I forgot my office number, 205 maybe. Uh, It's the first one when you get off the elevator and turn right. Uh, 
here in the history department at East Carolina University, but not speaking for ECU or anyone else, nor will my guest speak for anyone but himself, as we always do on the show here. It is the fall of 2018. The uh, first midterm exam took place today in history 1051, U.S. history since 1877. Why it is 1051, why we have four-digit course codes at ECU, I have no idea. Uh, but our football team had a good idea this past Saturday. They almost beat heavily favored Central Florida. Uh, it may be too early to think that the pirate ship has been righted for the season, but at least it is no longer springing leaks at every seam and firing blanks, so that's good. And as I walked around campus today, I was struck uh, by the phenomenon I've mentioned on the show before, the uh, omnipresence of bright green and yellow bicycles. Lime Bike is the name of the company that put them there. They're all over the place, and uh, you can you pay a dollar each time you use one, and when you're done, you just leave it wherever you want. You don't have to put it in a special uh, lockup. Uh, it, it locks itself using some electronic, some some wireless gizmo. And I see students riding them all the time. So apparently it is not uncool to use a Lime bike to get from one place on campus to another. And uh, they're just everywhere. It's uh, I, I use them. I really like the idea. I am. They are not a sponsor of the show. I'm not telling you that for that reason. In fact, we have no sponsors at Civil War Talk Radio, but sometimes I tell you about things that I think might be of interest uh, to you. One, for example, that might be of more direct interest to you, is the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College. Uh, it's not too early to sign up for the 2019 Gettysburg Inst- uh, Civil War Institute. It's June 14th through 19th at, uh, at the college. And I was looking at the list of people speaking there. I will be there representing Civil War Talk Radio, uh, but not as a speaker. I'll just be schmoozing with guests and lining up shows for the following season. But let me read a few of the names. These, these are not all the people who will be speaking. These are just the ones who have been or are scheduled uh, to be on Civil War Talk Radio. Alphabetically, Ed Ayers, Steve Barry, Pete Carmichael, Joan Cashin, Mark Dunkelman, Nicole Etchelson, Andre Flesch, Dennis Fry, Gary Gallagher, uh, Kent Graham, Earl Hess, uh, Ashley Whitehead-Lusky, uh, Jennifer Murray, Jason Phillips, Carol Reardon, Aaron Sheehan-Dean, Rachel Sheldon, Catherine Shively. Uh, I've run out of space on the page for getting to the, the Zs. But a lot of really interesting speakers, and I'm just as curious to hear the ones I haven't met yet. And uh, uh, So something to do with your, your uh, time and money next June. If you're not going on a Stephen Ambrose historical tours trip, try the Civil War Institute at, at Gettysburg College. Uh, if you're not doing either of those, you're just listening to the show, here's what's coming up in the next few weeks. Next week, it is Kirk Savage, author of Standing Soldiers, Kneeling Slaves, Race, War, and Monument in 19th Century America. Uh, certainly a timely topic here in North Carolina where the, the toppling of Sam on the campus of UNC Chapel Hill is still a hot uh, political issue. Following week, we have Peter Charles Hoffer, whose book Uncivil War Warriors is about lawyers in the Civil War, and their work is never done. Uh, 
Then we've got Lee Elder the following week, uh, that bloody hill, Hilliard's Legion at Chickamauga. And rounding out the month of October on the 24th, Christopher Stowe, he's a professor of military history uh, and department head of the War Studies Department at the Marine Corps Command and Staff College. And uh, he was there at last year's Civil War Institute and has a lot of interesting things to say. And finally, uh, this ties in with the Civil War Institute again, uh, uh, Beth Pernixa and uh, Tim Talbot. Uh, Beth is a uh, ranger at the Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park. Tim is the director of education at Pamplin Historical Park and the National Museum of the Civil War Soldier. I recorded a conversation with them last June at the Institute, and we'll listen to that on October 31, uh, just uh while trick-or-treating. You can be walking around in costume and listen to that as it comes out. So if you have ideas for other guests, please send them to me. Uh, they, they say the email address all the time. I won't repeat it. To find out more about who's coming up, check out impedimentsofwar.org and feel free to click on the PayPal donation button there to help with the renovation of the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters kitchen. Uh, not in the Brewster building, that's the one in my house, uh, or to help me buy a book for next week's show, whatever it is. Well, this week's show is one that has been is twisted in the wind, literally. Originally, tonight's guest was supposed to be on two weeks ago, but his office is in Columbia, South Carolina, at USC, right in the path of Hurricane Florence, which at the time was also threatening me here in Greenville. So we rescheduled... Uh, Originally, tonight was supposed to be uh, Professor Caroline Janey, the John L. Now third professor in the history of the American Civil War at University of Virginia, but the hurricane affected her schedule, too. They had to move some evening meetings around that they couldn't hold a couple weeks ago. They're holding them tonight. So she'll be back with us in January 2019, and tonight we have the very accommodating and oft-moved Dr. Mark M. Smith to join us to talk about the sensory history of the Civil War. Uh, Mark, are you there? I am, sir. I am. Uh, Welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. I very much appreciate it. We managed to skirt the wind somewhat, and uh, I'm glad to be talking to you. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, Our our damage here ended up being minimal, but a lot of our colleagues and a lot of students who live just 20, 30 miles to the south are are still underwater. So uh, we had a close call, but we made it, and and I hope everybody there is is safe as well. My heart goes out to those poor folks kind of on the border of where we are. Exactly. So... um, let me start by asking about your your background. A question I ask most guests: what uh, what got you initially involved in thinking to write about the American Civil War? Well, my principal area of of research, at least when I started, um, was the American South, in particular plantation economy, slavery, and I did my first book on the history of time consciousness in the Old South. And one of the elements of that book migrated into uh, how people understood time, and part of that was an auditory factor. That is to say, people heard clocks as much as they saw them. 
And increasingly, my, my research became more interested in the sensory experience of the American 19th century and 20th century. And so I, I wrote on the history of soundscapes and sounds and what the, the past sounded like to various constituencies and whose ears were doing the listening. And from that, um, I went further into a multi-sensory analysis of the history of race-making uh, from the 18th century really up to the 1950s. And I suppose my interest in the senses um, had a almost... Um, natural marriage with my research and interest in the American Civil War. And it struck me that this topic, while probably the most excavated topic in American history, had not really been subject to a sustained and detailed analysis of the sensory experience of the war. And oddly, Jerry, the, uh, the sensory history of war generally has been um, quite neglected, which is perhaps surprising. There, are, there is some work, quite recent work, on the history of the censors during the First World War, some on the Second World War, but really um, not much at all uh, on war generally and not much, at least in a sustained analysis, on the Civil War. So I, I, I work, obviously, still in United States history, but I increasingly work in the history of the senses, which has a very roving quality. So I have gone farther afield than I perhaps should do as an Americanist. And I sometimes write on European history, um, on other aspects of history, from the, the perspective of the senses. And so that's how I lighted on the Civil War, which just seemed to be... Um, not just crying out for a sensory analysis of experience, um, but really a much needed way to access the experience of war. And because we're such visual creatures, we tend to see the past through the eyes of participants. And while I'm certainly interested in that, um, I'm more keenly in tune with the auditory, the olfactory, the tactile, statery ways that people experience not just everyday life but especially during times of extremes and coincidentally I've, I've written also on the sensory experience of hurricanes and mm. uh, what I'm interested in is how these extreme events war, natural disasters stretch the senses reconfigure them and what that might mean for the people who experience those sensory reconfigurations at the time well, let me ask then a, a sort of basic question. Uh, somebody just looking at this topic might say, well, what is there to know? You know, cannon are loud. They're still loud. Dead horses smell bad. They did then. They do now. How is there anything new? How, how when we, you talk about seeing it through the eyes of participants, but how is that any different than seeing it uh, or smelling it through, through our own? Well, because there's a big gap uh, between 1863 and today. And the temptation, of course, is to assume a universality and a trend, transcendence of historical experience. Mm -hmm. And that really isn't the case. Um, the smell of death in 1863 has a different meaning to the way that death smells today. And the reason for that is because history has happened. There have been things 
in between 1863 and today that have reconfigured the way that we smell and the things that we smell and the values that we attach to it. And that's true of all the senses, if you think about it. Um, you know, a tornado cannot sound like a freight train until freight trains are invented. And so mm. the sound of a tornado has a, a different valence, a different meaning to somebody who lives in a pre-freight train age. And that is true of all sensory experience, visual included. Uh, the history of the color blue is a, is a good case, what blue meant um, in the 1500s is not what blue is uh, in the post kind of chemical coloration revolution. So I'm very interested in the historical specificity of context and what context tells us about how people experience the past. So what I'm trying to do in this book is not reach for some transcendent truth, but mm -hmm. really trying to excavate the very particular meanings that people attach to what they tasted and what they smelled and what they heard. And some of these things are so horrifyingly new to people in 1861 um, that they do have a radically different meaning um, than they did before and did after. So yes, canon are certainly loud, um, but they're also extraordinarily novel in the context of 1861. I mean, arguably, the loudest sound that somebody had heard prior to the Civil War um, in terms of decibels, at least, was probably thunder. And the novelty of these sounds um, elicited great comment from the people who heard them. And as the war progressed, their hearing became more attuned. And as you, as you know from your own reading in Civil War military history, you know, soldiers become very adept at distinguishing different types of fire, what's approaching them, um, through a careful kind of calibrated listening. So the ha very habits of listening change. And they, they do. I'm, I'm, really gonna, I'm going to step in yeah. and we're going to take a short break, but I want to come back and follow up on that, uh, mm -hmm. the, and especially that question about sound and listening to battles. But the context point is, is a, I think, a fascinating one. We will come back and talk more about it and other things with our guest tonight, Mark M. Smith. He's the author of The Smell of Battle, The Taste of Siege, A Sensory History of the Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, 
like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Mark M. Smith, author of The Smell of Battle, The Taste of Siege, A Sensory History of the Civil War. Uh, We talked in the first segment uh, just about the idea of a sensory history of, of anything and how different, uh, in relative terms, uh, the sensory inputs are today from those of the Civil War era. We, Mark, we were talking about the noise and uh, how, how no one had ever heard anything as loud as the, the cannonade at Gettysburg, maybe a thunderclap possibly uh, in 1863. But today, all of us, if we've walk in a street in a busy city or go to an airport, uh, we're likely to hear much louder sounds uh, routinely. So it's not the same thing. And we're, we're likely to hear very different sounds. I mean, if we think about one of the most common background sounds of our modern lives is the electrical hum in a variety mm-hmm. of guises. And that, of course, would be alien in the context of the Civil War. Um, and I suppose it's that difference that, that matters uh, the most to me in this book. And my, the, the, the temptation is very great, of course, to impose a kind of um, blueprint or set of coordinates over one's evidence. But I'm, I try to remain extremely sensitive to what the people at the time, their voices are saying about their sensory experiences. And one of the most interesting things, Jerry, mm-hmm. is that this evidence really isn't hard to come by. There is not some um, magical trove of letters on smell uh, from Civil War soldiers. There's not some um, unexamined uh, diaries dedicated to the sound of war or even the silence of war. Um, In fact, these sensory experiences, as one would expect, um, are deeply embedded in conventional narratives. And it's perfectly possible, thankfully from my perspective, to excavate these sensory musings, these sensory uh, insights from very conventional letters. The trick is the historian needs to kind of 
hone the radar to detect it and then and then excavate it, just as we do with sight. But sight mm-hmm. occupies such a privileged position in the way that we think of the world that that's that's what comes to the fore. We believe eyewitnesses more readily than we do ear witnesses, and we have no commentary whatsoever on smell or nose witnesses. Um, but we should, because these experiences were important to the people at the time, and they're very clear in their memoirs, their letters, their diaries, their newspaper accounts, that these were important elements to their experience of war. Now, one of the interesting sub-themes that I found in, in the book, uh, seemed, and I hope it was intended to be there, was the question of order or control. Um, mm. And you, you talk about that uh, in the first chapter when you look at Charleston in 1861 and uh, the, the necessity of order imposed by slaveholders on their captive population. But in a broader sense, you talk about order and the census. Could you elaborate on that? Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you actually identified that because it wasn't by accident. And <laughs> there is... the. The book begins, as I think any book in the Civil War probably has to begin at some level, with a quick recap of what is life like in 19th century America just prior to the American Civil War. Because if you're looking for that historical element of change or continuity, you have to have a base. And I begin with a description of how Americans tended to see the censors generally. Um, in the 1850s, how they understood the census. And for the most part, Jerry, they believed, like most moderns in the 19th century, that they had established a degree of control and order and calibration over this sensory world. Not completely, of course, but they nonetheless uh, cherished the conceit that they um, had established a degree of control over noise, for example so that noise ordinances existed in order to calibrate the soundscape more appropriately. That um, sight was something very much amenable to control, largely through the introduction of uh, eye-empowering technologies, such as spectacles and telescopes and things like this, and microscopes, perspective drawing, print, um, maps, as the case is with the first bull run, Um, Smell, too, was believed to be somewhat subject to control. People were washing more regularly. They were uh, exercising a degree of hygiene. They believed that they could, in fact, deodorize their society to an extent, shuttle the stench of sewage underground, or at least remove it from urban environments. And there were all sorts of protocols governing sensory interactions about touch and taste. And so before the war, there is this sense that the world, while certainly capricious, uh, can be subject to human control. And this is very much part of that entire 19th century Western conceit about authority over the world. Um, The the reason I I dwell on that at some length is because I want to show uh, how the war affected that conceit and how the war rearranged the senses and essentially... Uh, reminded participants that their sensory environments were very difficult to control and, in fact, were uncontrollable. And the larger point from all of this, and I I go to to some length to detail 
this loss of control, um, the inability to contain and control noise, for example, during the war, or to contain stench during the war. Because my sense is that participants in this war understood it less as a modern moment and more as an atavism, a throwback, a throwback to a distant stench-ridden past, a a distant noisy past, a a past where gustatory protocols were breaking down, a past where um, men ended up touching in ways that they hadn't um, in the antebellum period, at least in the context of, say, the H.L. Hunley submarine. And so... From a sensory perspective, the war doesn't really have that modern signature. What it instead has is a very uh, decivilizing quality. And that is best understood if you examine the sensory experiences of its participants. And that's really the whole point about order breaking down under the onslaught of a kind of sensory revolution, or rather devolution in a way, if that makes sense. And it, it does, and you, you in your, your opening chapter on Charleston and the, the secession moment uh, and the firing on Fort Sumter, you also point out that the people most suppressed by this sense of order, the enslaved population, are required to be silent uh, relative to their masters, and they they uh, they they take that and they run with it. They become hyper silent. Uh, I'm reminded of uh, Mary Chesnut's line about what was going on behind the, the black masks of our servants. Uh, the slaves are silent. They, she knows they're thinking something. She knows they know there's a war on, but they don't no, reveal anything. Right. Uh, yeah. And, well, and uh, yeah. yes, go. So, well, no, that, 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 that's very astute. I mean, that's precisely the weapons of the weak, right? So they are... Their voices, their bodies are calibrated through sound, uh, an imposition, or at least the idea of an imposition, because slaveholders uh, love the idea of control. Um, mm-hmm. And what you have here is the embrace of those protocols and the twisting of those protocols by the enslaved as a source of uh, resistance. Um, and there's a kind of odd leveling that's going on here in which, if you take Vicksburg, for example, um, the the very the very palate of elite white southerners is under the condition of the siege reduced and leveled to uh, a place that they didn't want to go, and they were eating the same food that slaves customarily ate, and. From their perspective, this is what constitutes a decivilizing moment, a kind of throwback to a place that they don't want to go, a place that uh, stands in stark contrast to the carefully cultivated society in which hierarchy and order are the signature of their world. And an important part of that is how the enslaved um, react to uh, these mandates and how they in turn manipulate them. Now, of course... These forms of resistance preceded the Civil War um, and had been cultivated for many years by the enslaved. Uh, They take on a significance in the war because there is a heightened sense of listening, a new habit of listening, um, in which rumor, sound, 
and silence convey information in a way and with a degree of specificity and uh, importance that they perhaps had not during the antebellum period. Your point about uh, Vicksburg, one of your chapters, it, you you assign one sense to each chapter and then look at a specific area, which is certainly a useful way to organize. Not obviously that you're saying, you know, Charleston was only about sound or Vicksburg was only about taste. But when you talk about the collapse of the, the food hierarchy in Vicksburg, that the uh, no amount of money is going to get you anything better than the same rats that the enslaved are reduced to eating. So uh, you also point out that precedes the actual siege that Grant uh, fastens upon Vicksburg, that, that the blockade reduces the choice of foods available early in the war. So by extension, it seems to me you can argue that, that Vicksburg is the siege and microcosm, but the entire South is besieged by the blockade and white elites everywhere are suffering from this this knocking out of the underpinnings of the uh, this hierarchy that they've created. Yeah, I think that's that's very true. What we have at Vicksburg is an acceleration of a process that's already begun. And I think the first evidence that I came across about the reconfiguration of pallets, uh, what people are now eating that they're not customarily um, inclined to eat, comes in 1861. So. The blockade certainly reconfigures foodways and access to food. I think what Vicksburg does is heightens that and gives it a degree of kind of laser precision. Um, that happens very quickly, uh, and it changes conceptions of time, too. People are now forced to eat things that they wouldn't ordinarily eat at that time of year because they, they don't have any options. And... What we eat uh, is, isn't just a, um, a nutritional question. It's, it's largely an aesthetic one, too, because this is about taste as an aesthetic, as a reflection of social hierarchy, as well as uh, your basic nutritional needs. And all of these are subject to enormous revision under Vicksburg, but I think you're right. I think that... A future study that looks at uh, the foodways of the South during the war would probably find similar tendencies uh, elsewhere, but perhaps not with the same level of intensity that a siege invites. And that's, the sieges throughout history have always done this, and the, you know, the, the intention at Vicksburg wasn't just to simply starve a civilian and military population, there wasn't also an element of humiliation attached to it, mm -hmm. in which you know, there's a kind of psychological warfare uh, going on here, in which they want they want elites uh, to suffer, and they want them to realize that they're suffering, which is why immediately after the end of um, Vicksburg, you know, there are new northern newspapers mocking um, what people had been reduced to eat uh, Hotel de Vicksburg, you know, the Chicago Tribune, these that publishes the menu um, of mules and rats. So there's, there's a lot going on in the siege of Vicksburg, but I think you're right that it's iterative beyond just the Vicksburg experience. Well, and, and that, I mean, if these, if these five chapters were just about the single incident that you focus on there, it would be it would not have the same impact uh, uh, 
but these are examples rather than than specific incidents. Yeah, they're, they're, I mean, they're, they're meant to be um, gestural. Uh, this is mm-hmm. a short book, Jerry, as you know, and it, mm-hmm. it is by design. And none of the topics are obscure or not well known. In fact, I chose I chose very well known instances in an effort to show a sensory reading of something commonly known, such as Gettysburg can help revise our understanding of something that is, is already well known. Um, so that's why I deal with succession in Charleston and First Bill Run and Dixburg and Gettysburg and the submarine. Uh, and that's by design. Um, it's, it's somewhat artificial insofar as plainly all of the senses have interplay. We don't simply live our, our lives through the nose. But by the same token, we don't live our lives simply through the eye. And so there is a there is a sort of deliberate contortion on my part to say, look, um, I'm I'm going to consider Gettysburg as an event of olfaction. Uh, I, I do recognise and I include in the book the auditory components of Gettysburg and the visual components, but I'm trying to distill from the participants themselves what they thought of it and how they experienced it. And for, for Gettysburg, smell becomes a very important marker of that event um, because the, the scale of the carnage is so vast and so unprecedented. Uh, the technologies of burial are not up to the technologies of death. They simply cannot bury these thousands of bodies, men and animals, as quickly as <laughs> they want to. And given the context, it's summer, um, it becomes an olfactory signature. So much so that when veterans go back to Gettysburg in, what, 1912, one of the comments that they offer is, uh, oh, this is Gettysburg, but it doesn't really <laughs> smell like it. Um, uh, you know, it, it can't, and, and it right. really shouldn't. And th- this kind of invites this larger question about how we experience the past. And can we experience it in the same way with the same meaning as the people who participated in it? And that raises this, this thorny question of, you know, can we reenact uh, the Civil War? And that, the well, answer well, to that, I think, is pretty simple. Uh, it depends what you want from the reenactment. Let's hold off on that question. I want to come back to that and pick up on, on that point you raised. You know, how do we remember this, uh, how can we remember this, uh, how should we remember this? Uh, so let's come back uh, in a few moments and talk more. Uh, we'll do that tonight with our guest, Mark M. Smith, author of The Smell of Battle, The Taste of Siege, A Sensory History of the Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Mark M. Smith, author of The Smell of Battle, The Taste of Siege, A Sensory History of the Civil War. Mark, I want to share a quote with you from a different war. Uh, this comes from uh, the introduction to a book by Don Congdon called uh, Combat Pacific Theater World War II, collection of first-person accounts. He described – these are the words of a soldier uh, from uh, the United States Army outside of Saint-Lô, France, 1944, and there are dead bodies all around. And, and he, he tells another soldier later in the war – I kept thinking at the time that I wished you could bottle that smell. I kept wishing you could bottle about 10,000 bottles of that smell. And along about 20 years from now, when they start getting us ready for the next one, it could be unbottled a little at a time. Nobody that ever smelled that smell would ever go to another war. Is there an element of mission in being a sensory historian to try to, on paper, bottle that smell so we understand the past? a little more viscerally? Well, that's very interesting. Um, That reminds me of the review of the book and a few other books. That was in the New York Review of Books. And it lumped my book, it it called it as part of the um, new school of gore, Hmm. uh, which the reviewer said was obviously an attempt to remind us of the viciousness of war um, and the uh, enormous sacrifice of war and the viscerality of war. And frankly, that that really hadn't occurred to me. I didn't see myself as writing in a vein of gore. Um, Mm -hmm. I was simply interested in the vein of experience. Now, Jerry, if, if describing that experience lends itself to people to pause um, before they go to war, then all to the good. I I suppose I don't really see myself as championing a particular position, but Mm -hmm. rather rescuing the voices of those who experienced war in all of its contortions and its sensory experience. And if that gives people pause, then fine. Um, I mean, I will say that I've, I've spoken on this topic to a variety of audiences. Mm-hmm. And some of the most interesting questions um, are asked by people who have experienced war. Sometimes they're Vietnam veterans, for example. 
And to a, to a person, they, they acknowledge that smell is a very powerful signature of war. Now, the smells differ according to the war. Um, <laughs> you know, the smell of napalm, for example, is a very yes. powerful signature. The, the smell of you know, mosquito killer is a, is a very powerful signature for lots of people. But what they, they like about the project is that it, it, regardless of the specifics of the smells that I'm trying to describe, they like the fact that smell is reintroduced into the experience of war. Because normally it isn't. It's a, as an aside. The, the quotation that you read is, is brilliant, and I wish I'd have found it myself. Um, because plainly there is an experience, uh, and the idea that smell can be redeployed to make people to pause or think about what they're doing. I, I, in all honesty, I didn't really see myself as um, championing that particular argument. But uh, for some people, um, reading this book uh, will give pause um, because it, it is, it's not that it's intended to be gory. Mm-hmm. It's intended to simply reflect the full range of human experience in a war. And, and it, it doesn't reflect the entire range of experience, but it, it does more than just looking does. It, it certainly does that. One... Uh, uh the final point on that quotation is that the person who said it during the war, uh, the editor of the book, runs into the same guy 10 years later when he's editing the book in the 1950s, and they talk about the war, and all the guy who, who just said that that quote can remember is good times on leave in Paris, that after 10 years, he has blocked out the memory of that smell himself. The same man who... who well, I think that's another that very interesting question because it has to do with habituation and that's part mm-hmm. of the, the thrust of this book because one of the... If you, since all history is largely about change over time or continuity, but nonetheless through time, um, mm-hmm. I, I remain very sensitive to this business of what happens to these people's senses over time. And mm-hmm. you do get this uh, habituation to especially sound, especially noises, um, where what was initially in 1861 a terribly exciting sound um, reconfigures into into a a demonic sound and then almost a kind of social deafness. Um, Smell, too, loses its Mm -hmm. sense of importance outside of these large battles um, and taste becomes habituated as well. And one of the things that elite white southerners in Vicksburg really detested was the fact that they had become accustomed to it. It was mm-hmm. the, the idea of um, their, their, their aesthetic and gustatory taste buds becoming accustomed to this food. To them, that was utter humiliation. And so the numbing of the senses during war is not peculiar to the Civil War. It happens in lots of wars, but it is a reconfiguration. And change over time matters. Something like smell has a kind of neuroscience quality to it as well, which has to be read in this context, uh, but it is a very powerful trigger for memory. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, the point that the chap was making, isn't it? If we could, if we could have people smell this death, it would trigger a reaction. Yes, and that's kind of the idea, but its absence also is significant. Witness the the veterans' um, reunions at Gettysburg, where its absence is the most right. commented upon. Yeah, 
Now, as we were going to the last break, you raised the issue of reenactors, which you talk about in the book. I thought that was very interesting. Um, obviously, reenactors don't uh, smell, taste, see the same things exactly. Do, do they get close? Uh, well, I think this is a fascinating question, um, and, and not limited to reenactors, but also. Um, museums and um, living museums, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm, I'm not. We have to make a distinction between the reproduction of, say, a sound or a smell, which conceivably could be very close. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we can recreate the score of music from the past, and it has that a very similar sound in its production. What I'm equally interested in is how we consume it, like how we experience it. And I think it's very difficult to experience the smell of Gettysburg in the same way that people did in 1863. And I say that because if we think of all the olfactory technologies that have intervened since 1863... We have a different habit of smelling, and the the values and meanings that we attach to certain smells are going to be quite different from somebody who lived in a pre-refrigerated age, um, mm. who didn't have access to the kind of deodorants that we use, for example, who, while certainly were in a world beginning to marshal and segregate stench, um, did not have indoor plumbing to the same extent, did not shuttle sewage far away uh, so that we never really have to smell it. And so the idea that we can somehow re-experience with the same nose or the same ear or even the same eye uh, that somebody experienced in the Civil War, I think is interesting not because it's achievable or not, but I think mm-hmm. it tells you something about us. Does it, you know, it, might, it might tell you something about our drive for authenticity to treat the past as something that can be consumed and re-experienced. And I'm not sure that's always been true. Um, the idea of reenactment is, is a relatively modern idea. The idea of going to a living museum that recreates, say, Williamsburg, is, mm-hmm. is, is something that uh, occurs in the 20th century, and you don't really find it with the same enthusiasm before then. And so the idea of reenactment and recreation, I think, is historically situated itself. Now, I recognize fully that not everybody believes that they can recreate the, the scents and smells of Gettysburg, and I, yes. I, uh, that, that's fine. Um, but I suppose I'm really talking about those folks who, who go to great lengths to do that, which I think is, is honorable in many ways and is engaged with an attempt to experience the past. But I think it needs to be tempered with the recognition that that past, um, while it perhaps is reproducible, um, is probably not uh, malleable enough to be re-experienced in the same way simply because... You know, the, the circumstance and context has changed. So you have. I, think, uh, I would say that the, the point about order that we we started with early on, uh, an attempt of people today to impose 
order upon chronology to rearrange it at will to experience 1863 when they want and wake up the next day in 2018 uh, is, is an interest the subject of another book altogether. Uh, let me ask so. you one. I think you know, that, that's really what I'm, I'm driving at here, that perhaps it tells you something more about us as mm-hmm. postmoderns um, than it does about the actual experience of the past. The drive to experience it, what does that mean? Is it an act of consumption that's very much driven by a larger culture of consumption? Mm-hmm. Um, is there something lacking in our uh, in our modern world about authenticity? Does it, does it grant us access to what we think is authentic? These are the kinds of questions that I think it invites. Um, but I'm not sure that the reenactment argument, as I just gave it, really gets you to 1863 in the same way um, that uh, people who uh, pay great attention to the smells of their body um, during reenactments really, really are, are getting there. I mean, it's the same. It's the same thing with sound, isn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, I point this out in the book. Um, you know, there are many instances during the Civil War with where things like acoustic shadows change the nature of the war or, or the particular battle or skirmish. Mm-hmm. Well, these things are not reproducible, are they? I mean, these are accidents of time and place and topography. And that gives that moment an historical uniqueness. We can recognize it, but we won't react to the same... We, we can't recreate it, and even if we could, we knew it would be coming, so it doesn't have the immediacy of the past because we already have known it. Does uh, one time, it, it does make... It absolutely does. One day in 1980. Eight, I think it was, uh, I was standing in Little Round Top, and there was a reenactment going on several miles away, but the sound of artillery suddenly carried to me, unexpectedly. I'm standing up there, and suddenly I'm hearing cannon. Uh, I, I was not for the least moment uh, persuaded I was transported to 1863, but it, if anything, it struck me how far away from 1863 I was and hearing that distant echo from a few miles away. Uh, in just one minute, this is more a personal curiosity question than an analytical uh, or academic question. Uh, it's the Civil War time machine question. If you had uh, the chance to go back for 30 minutes to any one of the places you've read about uh, or experienced, and I see we're down to our last 30 seconds, so where would you want to go if you could just go and come back safely? If I could come back safely... I would love to know how the H.L. Hunley sank. Ah. I would love to know exactly how that happened. I would love to know why those men were at their stations and not trying to clamber out of that submarine. Let me just say for listeners, that's a chapter in the book uh, that we didn't get to talk about tonight. For a book of uh, under 200 pages, including the index, there's a huge amount packed in here. And uh, Mark, I feel like we've only scratched the surface of it, uh, and we're already out of time. But uh, well, thank you. Um, it, it is the, the economy of prose in some way, but also <laughs> the very heaviness of war can take a toll on even a reader. Well, well, this book will stimulate the reader. Listeners, this is a book you definitely want to read, The Smell of Battle, The Taste of Siege, A Sensory History of the Civil War by Mark M. Smith. Mark, thanks so much for joining me on the show tonight. Thank you, Jerry. My pleasure entirely. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.